the vector of conscription for survivors and victims. It is a wholeness to bring us back to the word healing, resonance, and the healing of the exploitation of the innocent is a shared need for both genders, all genders. There's 88 genders on Facebook now, not just man, woman. This is the healing of the dimensions of consciousness of the human species, where power over can become empowerment through the power of love and the heart. Prophecies have foretold, and wisdom keepers all know, that the rise of the feminine will restore balance to our world. In this podcast, we are on a journey to understand the root of the imbalance that has caused disconnection and dysfunction within our humanity, so we can emerge as leaders, creating a new story on Earth. I'm Lauren Walsh. And I'm Shayna Connors. With humble hearts, and open minds, we will converse with spiritual teachers, historians, psychologists, revolutionaries, leaders, and healers to navigate these evolving times and reintegrate the feminine history that we have forgotten. Welcome to the Time of the Feminine podcast. Hi, Lauren here. I feel inclined to start today's episode off with a prayer, a prayer to the Holy Mother, a prayer for all of you who are listening and for all of the women we know and all of the men that we know for the healing of gender-based violence. This episode is an extension of that prayer. This episode is about an extraordinary moment that I had in my life where I was able to meet a reformed sex trafficker through the work of an organization that was presenting at the UN Commission of the Status of Women in 2016. This episode is with the organizer and the CEO of that organization, Fiera, and her name is Shevakar. Shevakar is incredible, and I will share a little bit more about her. But before I do, I want to say that the intention of her and I coming together in this podcast, in this episode, is that of healing and awareness around a very serious and very deep cycle of abuse and abusing, being abused and abusing. And so this episode comes with a trigger warning. Please tune into yourself and your heart now and ask yourself, am I available for this conversation going into these very deep and tender topics? 
And if the answer is yes, please continue to listen. And our intention is that by the end of this episode, with some practices and some tools, that you'll walk away more resourced and more able to continue on your healing journey. I pray that this episode fills you with hope rather than despair. Hope that from the frequency of our heart, from this work we're all doing together, that we can break the victim perpetrator cycle and also end oppression and human slavery here on this planet. And so we speak about many of these things that I've mentioned, as well as the difference between selling your body for sex and being a prostituted person. And we express personal opinions about this, which do not count for the entire picture of all humans on the planet and how they relate to their sexuality and to what is taking place in the realm of sexuality on our planet today. So with grace and with humility, we enter into this conversation and we ask for your tolerance and your open-mindedness as we share both vulnerably and also uh, a story of a man named Winston and his journey as a trafficker. And I ask that we enter into this conversation just with an open mind and an open heart, only if you are resourced and you feel open to the conversation. So with that being said, I'll introduce Sheva Carr, who is a business and nonprofit executive, a speaker, an author, a doctor of oriental medicine, an expert heart math trainer and coach. She loves and lights up when she helps people find fulfillment, empowerment, peace, and to make a world that works better for all with the power and the intelligence of their hearts. As the founding CEO of Fiera, Heart Ambassadors, and founding president of the charity, the Fiera Foundation. She is featured as a love luminary in Marcy Shimhoff's New York Times bestselling book, Love for No Reason. And she has authored her own book, Being the Source of Love. Among the many hats she wears, she is also the co-vice president of the United Nations Peace Messenger Organization, Pathways to Peace. She's also the co-director of HeartMath Healthcare and the architect and director of HeartMath's Heart Mastery Program and is featured in HeartMath's Resilient Heart Trauma Program. Sheva speaks to people all over the world on how to access heart intelligence and peace of mind in order to receive the benefits of the heart's impact on relationships, health, performance, creativity, contribution, legacy, social change, and the building of a global culture of peace. Sheva is so brilliant, so articulate, so mm, just so balanced as a human. And I feel so honored that she has said yes to being on our podcast today and speaking very vulnerable about nuanced subjects. So with your grace and your tolerance and your open mind, let's begin the conversation today. So much love and respect for you all. 
Hello and welcome, Sheva, to the Time of the Feminine podcast. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here, Lauren. So as I was just saying to all of you who are listening, this woman had an integral part to play in a massive healing in my life. And the intention of this podcast in my heart is that this journey of this next hour of a conversation with this beautiful, heartfelt woman who's done so much work for humanity, who holds a very integrated perspective, that this journey can be one of healing for you. And so I'll, I'll just pass the talking stick to Sheva to frame the conversation just a little bit. Well, I, I love it, Lauren, that you use the word healing, because in my studies many moons ago as a healer, which is where I began this work, I learned that the root word of the word to heal comes from the word hale, which means to make whole. And so we can never create wholeness by polarizing with half of humanity based on gender, race, behavior, or anything else. Wholeness healing will heal us all. And when anyone has been the survivor of a crime perpetrated against you or violence or aggression or oppression, part of the healing can be to stand up in that and contribute to consequences for the perpetrators of that. So I just want to be clear that when we're talking about wholeness healing, when it comes to gender-based violence in particular, we're in sensitive terrain. And it's not a one-size-fits-all solution ever. And in a podcast format, we're not afforded the opportunity to have one-to-one deep mutual dialogue between all of you listening to address the appropriate responses in your individual situations. And so we're in a delicate spot to speak in generalities, but no generality fits every scenario. And this is a conversation to honor all who are listening. When I, you know, when I'm working with my own students around these issues or my own patients and clients, then there's, there's things that can be said because more is known about specific situations. So it's a trigger warning, but it's also to, to speak to our limitation in having a podcast conversation and what we can and cannot address. And that should we, this is like errors and omissions insurance up front. Should we say something together that you know in your heart as a listener doesn't match your situation or isn't right for you? Trust yourself. If anything, gender-based violence in particular has been perpetuated along the alliance of the manipulation for women not to trust themselves or those who identify as female, not to trust themselves or their bodies, our message would be to the contrary. Trust yourself and all that you feel 
And we honor that here. Does that make sense, Lauren? Perfect sense and beautifully articulated. Thank you. And so I guess to start us off, I will frame a little bit of my own story leading up to my opportunity to sit in a panel that you were leading at the UN, the Commission of the Status of Women in 2016. So in the short form, I'm a survivor of gender-based violence. And I'm emotional in this podcast, even though usually I can speak about it without feeling that emotion. I can, I can speak about what took place for me without breaking down. I've done so much work around it. But in this moment, I just feel relieved to be having this conversation and to be sharing it. That's what I feel, just a deep, a deep tenderness for the journey that I've been on and that so many are on. And my abuse began at a young age. And I went through a phase of internalizing that as self-hatred and then going on a journey to destroy myself, these self-sabotaging patterns for about a seven-year cycle until I was 21 years old. And some of you who are listening have heard this, but at the age of 21, I had what can only be called a divine inter intervention where a miracle occurred in my life and not only in my life, my family's life. And all of us scattered and broken from our own trauma came back together in a very spiritual way and began to heal. Mm -hmm. And not just heal through conventional means, we healed from the power and the, the medicine of the Amazon rainforest and the traditions there. And they radically transformed me, coupled with a lot of trauma work, acupuncture, all the things, herbalism, all the things. For many years, for seven years, I went into what was a nun phase. I call it my healing cocoon. And I just really went in, 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 in. And after that phase, I came out into the world. And this is how Global Sisterhood was birthed through my declaration to the Divine Mother and to God that, okay, I feel so much better. I feel so much better. And I was remembered specifically walking in the forest one day. I had just gotten this new puppy. Her name's Aya. She's a white wolf dog. And I was praying the rosary, which has been a beautiful tool for me in my life, praying to the Great Mother. And I was praying the rosary. And I remember I had this overwhelming sense where I fell to my knees and I sobbed and I sobbed and I sobbed because I realized I was so blessed to receive the care that I received from 21 on, from the support, the community, the love, my family coming back together. And I realized how that doesn't happen for so many people. And I asked in that moment to make me a channel, <laughs> whatever. I didn't know what that meant. But in that moment, I, and I just said, help me there. Help me wherever I can work to free the feminine. And I had no idea what I was praying for in that moment. And I was such a baby. What I know now, I did not know then. I had a lot of fear. I had a lot of shame still. I had a lot of anger still. And though I had a lot of love, I had a lot of grace, and I had learned some things. 
And Global Sisterhood was born from that prayer. And I remember the first launch, building it, building it, building it, um, inviting women all over the world to sit in circles and uh, to start to do their healing work. And this is before Me Too. So the time was really ripe for us to come together, take off our masks and tell our stories. And I remember our first launch was incredible. We had 650 women's circles all across the world. And it was impactful. We had so many people write us telling us it was impactful. But I just felt depressed. I worked so hard to create this. And then the next day I was like, okay, that was it. Like... That was it. We got in circle one time and the world is better. I remember just feeling a little bit lost, but I had been invited by Avon Madison of Pathways to Peace to be a delegate at the UN a week later. And that was such an honor to me to be able to be chosen to go there as a representative and to learn what was taking place with women of the world and to educate myself. And I remember when I went there and I, I was at the UN, I just felt myself become more alive. And I wanted to focus on violence against women, particularly sexual violence. So I focused on those types of panels. And one of the days I went into a panel where Sheva was speaking and she brought on a man named Winston. Winston is a reformed sex trafficker and he shared his story and I'm in this room with all of these feminists and I could feel the rage I could feel the anger in the room and I could feel Sheva with her heart so wide open tell the story of what happened to Winston and what led him to that path as she so beautifully told the story of how young girls get roped into becoming victims of trafficking. And then he spoke. And the first thing he said is, I don't expect you to forgive me. And in that moment, I heard his voice. And I heard the voice of a little boy in that moment. A little boy that had his life taken from him. And I instantly cracked open and I listened so intently on every word he said. And I, I went up to him after he spoke and I just said, for what it's worth, I forgive you. And in that moment, it was like, I forgave what happened to me. And that informed so much about what global sisterhood has become because it could have so easily become something that sowed more division. But instead, it's been my learning to help bring more awareness around what's really taking place in the perpetrator and what's really happening in that dynamic and the wound that we all share that is a human wound that's playing out in these gender violence acts. And so I, I just wanted to share my story a little bit to give context about why this is so important to me because the story that you're about to hear, what, what Sheva's about to share, changed my life. And it felt really important to share this story with you. 
Thank you so much, Lauren, for your vulnerability. And thank you for acknowledging Avon. We were actually both at the UN that year as delegates representing UN Peace Messenger Organization Pathways to Peace. And at the time, I had uh, founded a branch inside my own nonprofit for contributing to the efforts to stop the sex trafficking of women and girl children called Operation Big Sister, which was based on my first trip to the UN four years earlier when all the data, so let's just, you know, be clear. The global data shows one in three women, and I would venture to say it's much higher than that, but this is what is proven statistically. One in three women um, are sufferers of domestic or gender-based violence in their lifetime around the world. And um, it's huge impact. The average age of entry into the sex trade globally is nine years old. 12 years old in the United States. The numbers of women and girls sex trafficked, and there are boys who are as well, but the, the vast majority are of women and girl gender are astronomical. There are more slaves in the world today many through sex slavery than there have ever been in history. And the average dollar value of human life as a slave is lower than it's ever been in history. So it's into this environment that I arrived at the UN as a delegate four years before meeting Lauren and spent nine days in dismal panels, hearing dismal statistics and hopeless stories and powerless agencies, barely able to put a dent in this organized crime. And I was getting myself more and more and more depressed and despairing and hopeless. And on my last day at the UN, it was literally sitting in a church pew where one of these side event panels was happening, having, you know, you get these sort of catalogs of events and you circle the ones you want to see. And I diligently identified the ones I wanted to see. And I had just seen one and I was so depressed. I didn't have the life force to get off the church pew and go to the next event I'd circled. I just sat there in a hopeless stupor which was a moment of divine intervention. So yes, the divinity can even use our hopeless stupors in our favor and the world's favor. I didn't move, nor did the delegate that was with me, my dear friend and now a member of my board, my Shpeta from Israel. We just sat there and onto that stage came Gudrun Jonsatir from Iceland, who pounded her fist on the podium and said, enough. And she got my attention. 
She said in Iceland, and I won't try to uh, imitate Gudrun's incredible voice and accent, but she said in Iceland, we don't just sit around the, on the couch whining about these things. We do something about it. <laughs> and not to say that all these agencies at the UN and all these incredible NGOs that I now have the privilege to partner with aren't doing anything. I'm just saying Gudrun shook the room and woke us up and explained what was Operation Big Sister which at the time, without taking the whole call to describe it, I can just say Icelandic women joined forces to stop sexual violence in Iceland and the sex trafficking of girl children there and women through a variety of legitimate means, lobbying government, changing policy, changing laws. And when their police chief went on national television after a law was changed to say, Prostitution is the oldest, what do they call it? The oldest profession or something like that. We're not going to waste law enforcement bandwidth fighting this, whatever the law says. At that point, the women who are toasting each other with champagne over finally, after years of advocacy getting this law passed, looked at each other and said, no more playing fair. And they started what they ended up calling Operation Big Sister, an underground anonymous movement where they said, if buyers of children can take out ads on Craigslist and anonymous phones to track down the services, the crime they want to commit, then we can too. And so they posed as sex workers and took out anonymous phone numbers and ads on back pages, uh, the equivalent anyway in Iceland. And when men would call them, to buy sex, they would say, this is your big sister watching you. Didn't you know what you're doing is illegal? And they got up to all kinds of antics. Uh, there were stories of men calling and getting a relative on the phone and getting caught. The big sister's power was in their anonymity. They recorded men's names, phone numbers, voices, pictures. They would meet men as a group anonymously in places saying, go here to buy sex and then stake it out and take pictures of them. They created a press conference and showed up in neon burkas to protect the power of their anonymity. The, the whole process spread through what was called the jungle telegraph, woman to woman, kitchen table to kitchen table, underground. There were 80 of them by the end, and they didn't even all know who each other were, but they would see each other at government events or cocktail parties and wink across the room. They were a powerful alliance. And when Gudrun shared this story, it was an example of what female solidarity and wit and wisdom can accomplish. So we created an organization here in the States called Operation Big Sister and found out that there were other stakeouts like the Big Sisters. There was a group of men run by a minister, actually, in Oregon doing the same thing and talking to buyers of sex when they called to ask them questions. Did you know you're perpetuating slavery? Did you know you're harming women and changing the men's lives? So, um, and it was through that work that I was introduced to Winston. 
Now, through that work, I also learned of the pathway through which most girl children around the world are trafficked. And I, my full-time work happens to be in uh, self-regulation, neuroscience, and trauma healing. The onset of this became an intersection of all my life's work in philanthropy and neuroscience. Because what I learned in those early days at the UN is that the vast majority of girls who are trafficked and women who are trafficked shared a common background with you, Lauren. Upwards of 95% of trafficked women and girls were abused as girl children and groomed neurologically to recognize that treatment as familiar and therefore as safe. And so learning how to heal that trauma and neurological grooming has been my life's work and expertise. And it's something that is now very well documented and with reliable methodologies. Your past does not have to equal your future, whatever your trauma. But seeing that at the UN and understanding as women and girl children have been abused as children, many run away from home seeking safety, and traffickers are students of neuroscience. Perhaps not the textbook biology of it, but the behavior and energy of it. And so they are skilled at recognizing and identifying their targets for those energetic and neurological vulnerabilities. So if you're a woman that finds yourself in repeated abusive dynamics, you can know there are ways you can change your own nervous system to both make new choices inside those seductive uh, dynamics and also change how you're recognized. Knowing that, so the typical pathway of a child to be abused at home, to run away seeking safety, to be seeking love, and then to fall into the arms or digital manipulation now through Facebook and social media of someone giving you that perceived love and adoration and approval and recognition, only knowing that's further grooming to abuse and manipulation. When I met Winston and started dialoguing with him, really for the purpose of understanding how to more effectively implement our mission at Operation Big Sister to contribute to the efforts to stop the sex trafficking of women and girl children. And Winston, at that stage in his life, had had sufficient remorse that he was looking to contribute to stopping the abuse. It uncovered for me that the resonance of trafficking and the vectors along which the survivor victims and perpetrators arrive in it are the same. So Winston was verbally and physically abused in his household as a child, ran away several times, at 13 was a runaway in the Toronto winter, hiding in the Toronto subway system without food, but there for warmth and shelter 
when a woman spotted him and took pity on him and brought him home with her to give him a meal. This woman gave Winston the first loving kindness he had ever experienced in his life. He didn't know what that was like until then. He only knew that felt warm and safe and loving. And then she had sex with him and groomed him. He didn't know that she was a prostituted person, but she brought him to work with her where all the women there thought he was cute and fond him with love and affection and presents and food and clothes. And so his sexuality became conflated with meeting his needs. The only kindness he'd ever known came from prostituted persons. And when he hit full puberty, he had two choices. Leave the world of the only love and warmth he'd ever known or become a buyer and seller of those who were giving him love. He chose to stay in the realm of the only kindness he'd ever known and become their seller. And with that began a journey that ended up in the Russian mafia, that ended up being shot, imprisoned, having his own life in constant risk, ended up in violence beyond what any of us listening to this podcast could probably fathom. He traveled internationally in his role. And when he himself was contemplating suicide and in a state of deep depression as a trafficker, he was in Colombia with bodyguards to acquire women to bring back through the pipelines he was a part of. When he had to walk through a cathedral in Colombia to get to the bar where there were women waiting to come accompany him, he had two armed guards with him carrying submachine guns. And he walked into the cathedral where there were people kneeling and praying, and he was riveted. He had never before in his life felt peace. And in that cathedral, he felt the presence of what he called divinity and peace for the first time. And he fell to his knees sobbing in the stillness, at which point his armed guards kind of kicked him and said, get up, we got to go. And he, as the boss said, sit down and shut up. We're staying here. They sat in that cathedral the whole day. I forget exactly how long, six to eight hours, not moving, not speaking. When Winston walked out of that cathedral, he walked out a free man. Now, something that everyone here should understand, no one walks away from the Russian mafia alive. Winston did. He flew home to Toronto. He stepped away from that whole world. He became a personal trainer. And at the time that I met him, we were coordinating with him to help other NGOs, Interpol, other agencies learn about trafficking from the inside. 
and how we could be more equipped and more effective at stopping it. What we presented that day at the UN and the, the presentation that Lauren saw is videoed. We have the video on YouTube and on our website at Operation Big Sister. So you can see Winston speak was to help educate teams at the United Nations to understand the vector of conscription for traffickers is virtually identical to the vector of conscription for survivors and victims. It is a wholeness to bring us back to the word healing, resonance, and the healing of the exploitation of the innocent is a shared need for both genders, all genders. There's 88 genders on Facebook now, not just man, woman. This is the healing of the dimensions of consciousness of the human species, where power over can become empowerment through the power of love and the heart. And that's what our organization has always been about. Thank you, Sheva, hmm. for sharing all of that. And as you were speaking, I had various questions come into my mind that I would love to ask you, if that's okay. I may not have answers, but if I do, uh, I'm happy to. And if I don't, I can direct people, hopefully, to resources that are more expert than I. So there is a sexual reclamation happening amongst women, which I'm a huge fan of. I think it's super important. And I'm left with this kind of gray area, tricky place that that I would love some support with around what is the difference in your mind between prostitution and sex slavery where women are prostituted versus someone who consciously is selling their body for sex and the sacred prostitute archetype and all of that? Where do you stand and what do you understand about this? So we're in a real tricky zone. Yeah. And I'm going to acknowledge that there are whole groups of women feminists who argue for the, in fact, Amnesty International is on this, this side of the issue that I'm about to share, that argue for the legitimacy and legality of sex work as a legitimate profession that should be legitimized just like uh, being a hairstylist or an acupuncturist. I want to honor acupuncture was a part of your healing and one of the modalities I was licensed in. So that sex work should be licensed like those other things. And generally speaking, as a healer, I'm a space holder more than a purveyor of opinion or partisan sides and things. But you've just asked me a question, one of the few for which I have a strong personal opinion. But I also want to honor, I hold space for all voices in this. My own personal opinion as a neuroscientist and as a person involved in diversity and equity conversations and race relations is that the buying and selling of a human body is always an affront to human dignity. And that 
with regard to power and choice. I don't define choice as the capacity to make a choice and make anything legal. I define choice as the neurological capacity to choose deliberately from the part of our physiology that has other options. When we have abuse as an imprint or our bodies uh, exploited as objects, and there isn't a woman alive on the planet today not subject to that imprint neurologically, and that is a mechanical habit or familiarity, a familiar zone neurologically, it is not a choice, neurologically speaking. It's a mechanical default, neurologically speaking. So I honor where anyone else lands on this, but that's where my heart landed with it. So I disagree with Amnesty International on this one, and it's an organization I revere and respect. So it's a, it's a, it's a polarized issue you've brought forth, Lauren. If people want to learn more, um, on our website, there's a whole section called The Myth of the Happy Hooker that you could read. And, and if I knew we were going to venture into this, I would have requested out of respect that we have a legitimate sex worker who believes they're making a choice on the podcast with us to share their perspective because diverse points of view are so important this is a time for dialogue, not dogma. I'm just sharing my piece of the dialogue, but it's a piece, not a whole. And to heal fully, we need the whole conversation. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate the way you spoke about that and bringing in the other aspects of the conversation because it's true. It's not black and white. There's nuance that we're all navigating. And I think to learn how to be in the nuance is where the wholeness is found. So... In fact, there's a phenomenal movie, and I'm not going to remember the name of it, about uh, a sex therapist who has sex with her quadriplegic clients to help them discover their sexuality. Mm. That would be one of those examples where there's no one-size-fits-all thing here. It's a beautiful story that I believe is actually based on a true story. So... How do we create mandates around every unique situation? That I don't know. But what I have seen is a lot of abusive men argue for the choice when they don't understand. You know, I've, I've even had members, I will say, of my own board say to me, well, you know, this, this woman is 21, so it's her choice. And I, I have to say back, if she was trafficked at the age of nine, does it really suddenly become a choice when she's 21, when that is the only world she's known? Absolutely not. And show me what her other viable options are. Because for something to be a choice, we need equal but different options. Yep. I agree when a woman that. selling her body can make 10 times the amount of money she can flipping burgers, how is selling her body? actually a choice. We need equal but different viable options. So mm -hmm. it's something I happen, you stumbled into one thing in this life, Lauren, that I happen to feel quite vehement about. 
And Honestly, Sheva, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful because this is, you know, it's something I contemplate a lot. And I'm just going to keep going with my questions then. So psychologically, I also tend to be in the agreement, which I don't even necessarily want to say to polarize us more, but I tend to think that leaning into sex work is often either you're leaning into it in a healthy way to heal your sexuality or you're perpetuating the trauma and it's the thing you know to do. Like I happen to to see that and understand that myself. And that's true on the buyer's side as well. Yeah. Like, like why we have to address why are men feeling the need to buy something rather than love and relate? Right, right. So it leads me to wanting to understand this thing you just mentioned about the nine-year-old that was starting to be trafficked. Like, what is the difference between being trafficked and prostituting in a way, like kind of clarifying those and and also the psychological manipulation that takes place to where a woman won't even testify against her pimp because to her, it's her friend or her lover or someone who took care of her when she was young versus somebody who harmed her. Can you speak about well, let's, that? Let's that? honor that the manipulation isn't just psychological. I just read a report yesterday from the Phoenix Law Enforcement Divisions looking at this, where I think I, I should have kept it up so I could cite it properly and give you the statistics. But I think they said two to three girls under the age of 15, if I remember properly, forgive me for not uh, citing exactly, are rescued from the sex trafficking industry in Arizona every day. Like an FBI agent said to me, just to give us a picture of the numbers, if there is a hotel or motel in your town, I live in a town with 3,000 people in it, tiny, like more woods than people. If there's a hotel or motel in your town, there's sex trafficking going on there. That's what this FBI agent said to me. So now when you look at your question, Lauren, inside that context, it's not just psychological coercion that keeps those girls and women trapped. It is physical violence. This report from Phoenix was detailing uh, bullet shrapnel in these girls threats on their lives, strangulations. Some of them have tried to jump out of cars that are moving and have broken bones from trying to escape jumping out of the car and the car runs them over and picks them up. And so let's be clear, this isn't just the illusion, you know, this isn't just the flea circus, you know what the flea circus is, where if you put fleas in a jar with a lid and they learn they can't jump beyond the lid, then you take the lid off and the fleas won't come out or the Barnum and Bailey elephants that were tied up with chains as infants. And then uh, there was a fire in a circus tent and the elephants who are now weighing tons, right? They could, they could destroy the circus tent in an instant if they wanted to. But now because they've come to know that that sense of the, the rope or the pressure around their their leg means they're tied up and can't get away. So by the time they're adults, they're just chained to nothing stronger than this like chair next to me, this little sawhorse. And so there was a fire in a circus tent and all the elephants perished because they neurologically didn't know they could run away. 
So both are true, but it, in many of these cases, there is extreme life-threatening physical violence. It is not just a psychological uh, manipulation. I want to be very clear about that. And so again, when you say, what is the difference between being trafficked or prostituted and choosing sex work? Well, is it a choice if you've been told that if you don't do this or if you leave, all your family will be murdered? Those aren't equal but viable mutual options to choose from. That is not a choice. If you've been molested by a family member from the time you were six years old, then you're 25 and you want to take your sexuality back and sell it and make money off it, is that still a choice? It's a very complex conversation that would require therapeutic intervention to assess. When I became a licensed acupuncturist and herbalist, no one sat down with me for three years of therapy to assess, do you want to get into this profession because of your past trauma? So we are dealing here with an extremely complex issue of and autonomy and authority of one's own body and choices is a very complex conversation that now is extending in all kinds of ways. We could right. take us down a quite a path to discuss when we talk about medical sovereignty and all kinds of things. Right. Right. Okay. For my next question, it's, it's about Winston's journey. When he was shown care and also taken advantage of sexually by the women who were prostituted, was he then introduced to the men doing that? And how did he get to the choice of, do I sell these women or that transition to me? Could you explain that? There was violence perpetrated against him mm-hmm. when he found out that uh, the woman that had taken him in. And, and again, um, this complete story is actually uh, in an interview that Winston and I gave together to the Gangaji Foundation. So I could see if I could put my hands on that and link it here for you, Lauren, because I don't want to misspeak and speak for someone else's life story. Right. I wish Winston were here to share this in his own voice. Mm -hmm. But when he discovered what was happening to the woman that had taken him in, he tried to protect her. And the pimp that was pimping her out attacked him violently. And so it's not like the way you apply for a job and you sit down and you find out what are the benefits and you fill out contracts and sign them. It's initiation by fire. Again, it's no choice. You want to live or you want to die right now. So here we are inside that very, you know, Here's what I would say about it, and I think it's important for me to emphasize this part of it. We do have choice as human beings, but most people don't have access to it. You Mm -hmm. don't have to be abused as a child not to have access to your choice. When we are in physiological survival mode, fight, flight, freeze, fawn, 
or what one of my colleagues calls fight, flight, freeze, appease. Our nervous system and brain function is operating from the limbic level and below. And that is not a place of choice making. It's a place of reacting for survival. The vast majority of people live a good percentage of their lives in that autonomic and central nervous system place. Vast majority, do we have statistics on that? Or, I mean, I think that's probably true in Western culture for sure. Well, that's just for each person to listen to inside yourself. When you think Mm -hmm. about the quote unquote choices you make in life, how often are you reactive or in fear or in anger or outrage or enrage or judgment or all these things that are just part of that limbic function? Mm -hmm. It's not bad. It's standard. It's how we've survived as a species so far for the last few hundred thousand years. However, to, to make deliberate conscious choices requires what I would say, representing the organization that I work closely with, HeartMath Institute, we would call heart intelligence. The shift of the nervous system responding to a coherent rather than incoherent heart rhythm that sends signals along four pathways to the brain, opening up the higher cortex, the frontal and prefrontal lobes of the brain, which can process information differently, that take in the present moment differently and respond to it completely differently. And so there is reliable methodology upon which every human being who has a heart, and we all do, can shift the choice-making operating system from survival mode or surviving mode to thriving mode and make choices based on your heart and higher cortical function. That, to me, is how I define choice. And it makes a completely different directional momentum in your life And the signatures of it neurologically are undeniable when you know and are educated in that. So this is the trauma healing work that I do, not just with people who have been subject to gender-based violence, but people who have all kinds of trauma in life. So how we define choice is, is very important. Could you share or guide all of us and those who are listening in this moment to access their heart and their higher choice? Mm, What a beautiful request. Thank you, Lauren. So uh, I want to give a nod to my colleagues at the Institute of HeartMath that have been researching cardiac and neural physiology for the last nearly 35 years. And uh, their system of tools that came out of this and gave me my choices back as a person with trauma. And so first we could begin this tool that I will do two tools with you. The first is called heart-focused breathing. And then we'll do the quick coherence technique, which quickly gets the heart rhythm, the brain, and the autonomic nervous system in a coherent, a physiological coherent state, which changes over 1,400 things in our body and mind, including the part of us perceiving life and responding to it, 
literally opening the aperture of our awareness to allow us to even see choices where we didn't know there were any. Because when we are in survival mode, we're looking at life through a peephole of perception. And we can't necessarily see choices and options that are there for us. So the first step is to focus your attention on the area around the heart, the chest area. If you find it helpful, you can put your hand on your heart, but it's not required. You can do this eyes open or eyes closed. These tools can be done in the midst of situations. I'll give you an example. I myself was kidnapped at gunpoint when I lived in a war zone. So I was able to prevent an act of sexual violence against myself embodying these principles. As you breathe now, imagine the breath is flowing in through the heart and out through the heart. So you're maintaining your focus of attention in the heart or chest area. While breathing a little slower and deeper than usual. If you find it helpful, you can count as you breathe in. And count as you breathe out. On whatever rhythm is comfortable for you, but a key in the door to open the gate to the freedom from trauma is that the inhale and exhale are even in length. So if you find it supportive, you could count to five or whatever rhythm works as you breathe in. And then the same number of counts as you breathe out. Heart-focused breathing. And just notice as you do that, are there any changes in your body, your emotions, your thought process? I noticed right away my stomach relaxed and started gurgling. So my parasympathetic nervous system came on board more. This heart-focused breathing is balancing the autonomic nervous system or equal, uh, bringing greater harmonization and equalization to the sympathetic and parasympathetic system. So it pulls us out of fight, flight, freeze, fawn into a different operating system. Do you notice anything change in you, Lauren? I notice that my mind, the thoughts in my mind, it's like a... Um, when there can be a buildup of pressure or maybe if it's even like fear. Hmm. I got a little fear talking about the prostitution thing. And then now I feel surrendered and trusting and clear. Hmm. 
do you feel more aware of what's going on inside you or less, would you say, just doing that simple breathing? Definitely more. And how about what's around you more or less? Yes. I was noticing um, my partner get home from acupuncture. I could hear the door and I was like, oh, he's home. But it wasn't like fixating on any thoughts. It was just just being aware of my surroundings. Neurologically, this simple tool not only pulls us out of survival mode, it increases our self and situational awareness, which gives us more safety personally and more choice Mm. in response. So now we add to this simple heart-focused breathing the activation of what we call a heart feeling. It turns out this uh, system-wide coherence is very interwoven with emotion. And emotions like love, care, compassion, appreciation facilitate and help sustain this optimal physiological state of coherence over time. So as you breathe in through the heart and out through the heart, I invite each of us to just breathe either gratitude, appreciation for someone or something that we feel appreciation for, or compassionate care. And breathe the feeling of that in through the heart and out through the heart. Again, noticing Does that bring any changes to your body, emotions, thoughts? I see you nodding, Lauren. What do you observe? Well, the easiest access to appreciation is my dog. (laughs) I just like talking so much. And I was feeling like a flood of just warmth and just more ease in my system. And then I was like, how did Sheva do this at gunpoint? (laughs) (laughs) well there are what we call phases of competence so neurological imprinting doesn't just torture us with our past abuses Mm -hmm. it can work in our favor with habits that serve us Mm So frequent practice of this, and before we close up, we'll talk about how to apply it in making choices, right? Because it changes the part of you choosing. It brings you to the heart of who you are, where more choices are visible. And when you have choices available, the choice made is different. But practicing on small choices like, huh, before I choose what to make for lunch, let me breathe gratitude through my heart and see what my heart intelligence says. 
practicing frequently with small choices makes it neurologically available for the big crisis moments. So the first phase of, of mastery is unconscious incompetence. I don't know what I don't know. That's where I think it's my choice, even though I'm reacting and in survival mode, and I don't know there's another way to do things. Hmm. Then I might learn, oh, wait, this chick on some podcast said there's like this relationship between the heart and the brain, and there's a brain in the heart and a different part of the brain that could see more options. But I don't know how to access all that. That's conscious incompetence. Now you have a tool, the quick coherence technique that you can start using and playing with and trying it out is like when I was learning to drive at Young Drivers of Canada, where, you know, you're like adjusting the mirrors and walking around the car and thinking about each thing. And that's conscious competence where you got to think about it. Eventually it becomes unconscious competence where it becomes your new default. So when I was having a, a dream, a nightmare, and I was asleep and I was had a nightmare. I was in a bank robbery. And I had jumped over the desk in the dream and I was hunched over with the teller while guns were pointing at us, teaching her the quick coherence technique. And I woke up <laughs> in the dream. I said, yes, it's unconscious competence for me now. <laughs> so it can get there with practice. And, um, you know, I don't know if this is if this is not kosher, Lauren, you can edit it out later. But if people would like to have some consultation on how to use these skills, these, um, you know, basically neurological reprogramming and heart opening, heart wisdom accessing tools and methods. We offer free consultations as a public service. And I can give you a link where people could ask for that. Go ahead. And you want to say that link now? Because this so, is completely kosher and approved by me. <laughs> Cool. I'm glad we're Kashrit. So um, it's, it's, uh, you can go to heartmastery.com. I'm right there on the homepage or heartambassadors.com. Either of those will uh, pop up a link for you where you could ask for a free coaching call with a certified coach that works with me in these skills to help heal your own trauma and give you more choice. And I will say this, you know, at OperationBigSister.com, we have a take action page where there's all kinds of things. Our civilian army, people let just like Lauren and me and you can do to stop the exploitation of the innocent. But one of the most important things any of us can do is shift our own way of living to a heart-based way of life where the choices we make in our lives are true choices from the heart. I feel like this could be a nice place to wrap up, but I have one more really pressing question if you're open. Yes, of course. So I love the direction this podcast has gone to choice and really learning how to reprogram ourselves from our, our traumatic impulses and behaviors. Um, I think this is an incredible conversation. I'm so happy about it. And my original intention was to help bring more awareness to the perpetrators and to bridge the divide between us. And I think we've done that and you've shared beautifully about that, but I'd really love to bring this point home a little bit from your just expertise and all the space you've held, what you've learned about, yeah, that 
that vector, as you said, the perpetrator and the victim dynamic. I would really love to hear more about that. It's not separate from everything we just talked about. Yeah. We could all ask ourselves, certainly my answer will be yes to this. Have you ever done anything you regret or done anything impulsive that when you look back on it, if you'd been aligned with your heart and your own own core values, you wouldn't have done? And the reality is when we're in our reactive nervous systems, all of us are perpetrators. And so to me, the perpetrator-victim continuum is something we all experience both sides of when we're in our reactive survival nervous system. It's just the prey-predator nervous system. And the healing of that is the upgrade that I jokingly say we can all download from the inner net of the heart. And, you know, again, this is not to say, and and as I mentioned to Lauren, we're having this conversation on the day when I have just confirmed with an internal audit team in the FBI that the largest fraud that I've personally ever experienced has been perpetrated to my organization. So I'm in the midst of caring for a situation where in the duality of victim perpetrator, I'm currently, if I was going to play it that way, the victim, but I don't see it that way. And I'm not relating to it. I see us all learning and growing. And it doesn't mean that we won't activate the appropriate law enforcement response because the feedback of life is part of the learning and growth. But so I don't know if this answers your question, Lauren. In the heart, we are one. And as we heal these things in ourselves, we contribute to healing all. We are different sides of the same coin. And uh, I don't know, maybe you'll have me back after. uh, This is at play in my own life right now. I have to consult with the base, the, the involved agencies here. But I feel this has happened so that I myself could have a, a new choice to respond to a, the perpetrator of a crime. As a, as a young girl, I was awestruck by Victor Hugo's book, Les Miserables. I think I attempted to read it at about seven years old. It was way above my head. But I saw the scene. You know, it's going to bring me to tears. I saw the scene of Jean Valjean um, being brought to the bishop, for those who know the story, having stolen the candlesticks. And the bishop saying to the police, no, no, they were a gift. And how that single act of unprecedented love and forgiveness in his life brought forth who he could be in his higher nature. As a young child, that story became a guiding light and principle in my own life when my best friend was murdered. 
I, I come to this not as a, some holier than thou person who can say from above all the density as some lotus flower out of the mud, oh, we should be forgiving. I have been on the receiving end of violent crime, but I know in my heart that that forgiveness is a gateway to freedom for us all. And I am living the question and the inquiry with all of you. How do we heal? Not just ourselves, but this world and each other. And I welcome the conversation and collaboration. Mm. So for our final question, Sheva, (laughs) (laughs) which we ask all of our guests, In this moment, if you could channel a great mother, what would she have you say to all of us? Everything, no matter how distorted it expresses itself, has love at its core and can return to love. And so it is. Thank you so much, Sheva, for being here and for sharing your work with us. And this podcast, this episode is full of such deep wisdom. And I hope that everybody that's listening here will be able to uh, use the practices introduced here and reach out if you need any support whatsoever. We're here for you. And I know Sheva is and Heart Mastery is. Would you like to share that invitation one more time, Sheva? Yeah, please. You know, we we have a lot of experience helping survivors of all kinds of trauma move from post-trauma to post-traumatic growth and contribution. And uh, we welcome the partnership with you. And you can find us at heartmastery.com or heartambassadors.com. Thank you. Thank you. Much love to all and deep honoring of all your journeys and all your experiences and where they will take you in your choices and service. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Time in the Feminine podcast. It's so fun and such a privilege to have these conversations with these incredible guests. We ask that you follow them, support them, like their work, buy their books. And it's an even greater privilege and honor that you, sister, are listening. If this episode was meaningful, let us know by giving us a review and you are invited to take Sacred Facilitator or any of our facilitation programs that we have throughout the year. So go to globalsisterhood.org to learn more or follow us at the Global Sisterhood on Instagram. Episodes drop every single Thursday and we have some really beautiful episodes in store. So until then, loves, much love and a big, big hug.